Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Jacinia Montilla. Jacinia is a New York City poet with Afro-Caribbean roots. She is the author of The Pink Box, released in 2015 by Willow Books, and her work has appeared in literary journals like Adana and The Wide Shore. A Canto Mundo fellow, she received her MFA from Drew University in poetry and poetry in translation, and all this while working a full-time job in IT. I was introduced to Jacinia's work earlier this year when her stunning poem, Maps, appeared in the Academy of American Poets' Poem a Day email series. I read that poem over and over, gladly overwhelmed by its emotional force. In this episode, we discuss the inspiration for Maps. We also discuss writing both the immigrant and the American experience, walking around with your two weeks' notice in your pocket, and why poetry is like a puzzle. It is really, really being part of an oppressed group or a colonized group to kind of struggle with identity all the time, all the time, all the time. Well, I wanted to start with maybe maybe a big unwieldy question. When did you fall in love with writing? I think I've always written um, since I was a little girl. I was always writing stories. And um, my grandma, who lives in Miami, has a huge box full of my notebooks when I was a tiny kid, just writing like crazy wild stories. So I've always written down stories. But as a poet, um, that didn't happen until 2007. So I'm a baby poet. I've only been writing poetry for about 10 years. Um, and I took one class at Hunter College with Tina Chang. And I fell crazy in love with the idea of everything you can do um, in poetry on one single page. Um, it's not like a novel that drags on and on. You can actually create a whole world in one page. And that was really that was like a puzzle to me. And I was like, man, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so I switched my major immediately and became um, a creative writing poetry major um, and jumped right after my um, undergrad to my MFA. Do you remember what you were reading in Tina Shang's class that made that click for you? The first book I read was Mary Howell, Where the Living What the Living Do, and that was that was it for me. She would write these small, um, maybe fifteen, sixteen line poems, and there was so much there um that I, I said, Well, how does she do that? I need to learn how to do that. Um we also read like Terrence Hayes and Patrick Rosal. Um it was um, like we. She, she can't have like fourteen books on the syllabus. It was insane, but it was so beautiful, and it just opened my eyes to the possibilities of what my life could be going forward. You did your MFA through Drew University, which is a low residency program, which is kind of interesting. Can you talk about why that felt like the right fit for you? Um, I work full time. I'm actually um, a project manager in IT at a law firm. <laughs> Here in New York City, um, so I didn't know how I was going to be able to fit like the rigorousness of writing every day that an MFA requires. Um, and then I was kind of shopping around for different MFA programs. And one of my professors at Hunter was like, "I just heard of this new program, Drew University. Um, it's low residency. You go ten days twice a year, and um, I think that might be best for you if you can take the vacation time from work and just do that. And that's what I did. I spent two and a half years not taking vacation from work. My vacation was my low residency, but it was vacation in a way, even though I was doing a lot of poetry work. Um, and, and it was where I feel like people wind up where they belong. I belonged at Drew at that time. Um, I, I, 
I was taught by Anne Marie Makari, Gerald Stern, um, Judith Bulmer, Michael Waters, Adeseli's Germay, Patrick Rosal, and Ross Gay. Those are my teachers. Joan Larkin. I can keep going. So many incredible um, poets that I would never have been able to have under the same roof unless I would have applied to that program and gotten in. Yeah. You were born and raised in New York City. Um, do you come from a family of of poet and artist types? Um, uh, you know, like I, I come from I come from immigrants. Like my my mom came here at twelve years old from Cuba, and my dad came here at twelve years old from the Dominican Republic. Um, my grandmother did write poems, but she was a churchwoman. She's Seventh Day Adventist, and she um, left left us like notebooks full of like these religious poems that she would write that I'm hoping one day I can um, maybe get my hands on for sure and translate. Um, but I didn't know that about her until after I had become a poet. It was, it was like a secret for her. Like she wouldn't tell anyone. And then when she realized I was writing poetry, she like brought all these notebooks down and spent like four hours reading me religious poems. <laughs> oh my God. Is this the same yeah. grandmother who kept your notebooks? No, different, different, different. Yeah. Why do you but, think she kept it a secret? Um, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like it was something for her. Like she was um, pretty much a single mom of four kids and um, she worked in a factory her whole life. And I feel like maybe like that was just her thing, her personal like relationship between the page and God. Um, and I'm not a religious person at all. So to sit there and listen to her read these things, which seemed like, um, otherworldly, like really otherworldly, like she was having these experiences and writing them down, um, floored me. Um, but I think also she, she needed that. That was her escape and she wasn't going to share with anyone until she found me and knew that I was doing sort of similar things. And she's like, Oh my God, we're like, we are kindred spirits. We are family. Let me show you what I've been doing. And she, she has, I mean, she left behind tons of notebooks. And I think my aunt has those, and I can't wait to get my hands on them. That's such an incredible story. Do you feel like it's an escape for you as well? Absolutely. Um, you know, I spend like eight hours a day working one side of my brain. Um, so writing poems is an absolute escape. I can create my own worlds. Um, I can figure out like what kind of a human being I want to be on the page. Like that's really important. I think like Patrick Rosal, I was at a reading that he had with Tina Chang at the new school where they asked him and I'm, I'm totally um, going to mess this up because I don't remember exactly what he said, but they asked him something like, why does he write? And he said, I really like that guy on the page. I like that dude. And so I write to become closer to the person that I want to be. And I think that's sort of like what I do too. I really love like my voice on the page. And so I'm kind of like in a, in a love affair with, with that voice. And the only time I can get close to it is when I write. So that, that's really why I do it. Like I'm trying to get closer and closer to the person, like the adult that I want to be, even though, you know, I'm 42, but we're always growing. Right. I was recently at a talk here in Detroit by ta Coates, and he was talking about the process that led him. It, he was reporting a story that ended up falling through, but it led him to writing the case for reparations. And then he talked about the growth of Between the World and Me. And he it, it just kind of clicked for me, asking the questions that make you be a better person in the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. How do your roots, um, I mean, I know they're very present in your work, so, so it seems maybe like a little bit of a silly question, but, but what do you think it is about your roots that, that come up in your work? 
Well, just like knowing the Spanish language, to me, Spanish is so different than um, than English. Like Spanish is my first language. There's so many things that you can say in Spanish that don't have English equivalents. Um, and don't ask me to think of one right now because I can't. <laughs> um, but there are there, there are ways that um, um, in Spanish you dream that is not the same in English. Like when I dream in Spanish, when I dream in the Spanish language, um, almost like even the images are different than when I dream in English. And so um, I wanted to capture that and I wanted to honor that too. But I also wanted to honor the struggle of the immigrant. And my parents being that, like what it's like to come to this country and not know the language and still make a life, um, that was really important to me. But also still keep the things they love, like food and um, just those little, the music, like the the culture itself, I wanted to kind of like preserve it. And that's why I try to um, keep it on the page for, for myself. It's really for me, but it's also for my family and to honor them. Right. Yeah. And and I love the way that you play with Spanish and English together in your work, too. Yeah, I think it's important to do that. I also feel like it's a way to, if someone doesn't speak Spanish, but is reading my work, it's a way to challenge them. Because if I read something that has like German in it, and I start looking up the words, that excites me, because I know I'm learning something new. And I wanted to sort of give that same gift to my readers. I was really struck to preparing for our conversation and and looking at the different ways in which you approach this question of sort of how one race perceives another and kind of wanting to be seen or accepted by that other. Um, you know, I was thinking of the the perfect game poem and the whole Sammy Sosa metaphor. And then the uh, I loved this line in, in Sappho, New York, I am like a blue jay, everyone thinks is a sparrow. Um, do you feel like that is something that resonates with you personally, or do you feel like that's kind of a larger issue in the immigration process that you, that you try to explore? I mean, it's a, it's a larger issue, I think, in just being a colonized body. I come from a fam- my, my dad's side, we're all, they're Dominican, and um, the island is pretty much an island full of Black folks, but they don't accept that. They sort of believe that they're either white or native. Um, they refuse to even have um, Black as an option on the census. So like, there's a lot of deep rooted uh, racism within themselves. Like I remember going to my grandma's house after I stopped um, relaxing my hair and blowing it out straight. And I had my wild curly hair and she said to me, what's the matter? Are you ill? There is something about wanting to be other. And usually that is wanting to be whiter. Um, And that's something that I've struggled with as, as a young kid growing up in a household that didn't accept who they were. Um, and it's also something that um, I struggle with as an adult um, in the way the world is today. Um, it is really, really being part of um, an oppressed group or a colonized group um, to kind of struggle with identity all the time, all the time, all the time. Um, and Sammy Sosa is no different. Like, here's a guy who had everything, and when he had a chance, he chose to make himself look very, very, very white um, to the point where he's unrecognizable now. Um, and that to me is, is part of a, a larger issue that I don't know if I'll see resolved in my lifetime. Right. Yeah. It, it must be a really frustrating thing to keep working with right now when it feels like, I don't know, we're all being reminded what a nonlinear path progress takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Do you find in the world of poetry 
being an Afro-Caribbean poet and, and working with those themes, do you feel like there's a kind of colonization then of your work or like, do you feel like it is ever kind of ghettoized in, or your you know, your and, and other Latinx poets writing, do you feel like it's kind of, okay, here over here is like the, the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, we struggle with a lot, right. Um, um, the first thing we struggle with is being exoticized consistently with our work. Um, so people tend to, um, white people tend to say things like, you're really beautiful, or I really love your hair, as opposed to, um, you're a really great poet, or I really like your work. They immediately first go to like talking about how different we are than they are, how different I look, and how, how beautiful that is, how attractive that is to them. That's one thing. Um, that I struggle with as being an Afro-Caribbean um, poet or an other poet. I think any other poet would say that, right? But in terms of the work, there's like this line that we're crossing, right? Because we um, we want to be able to uphold our who, where we come from and our roots. Um, but we're still American, right? And we, we've gone through the American um, education system. And so we know what you know. <laughs> and our language is the same sometimes. And so, um, to like walk that thin line of where I don't want anyone to say to me, like you, you, you're acting or sounding white. I'm just me. Like, this is like my language. My voice is a culmination of everything I've read, everything, every, every classroom I've ever been with and every person that's ever touched my life. Um, so, so yeah, like we, we definitely have like these thin lines that we're always kind of like walking, um, and I don't like that line. So I try to kind of trespass all the time and I go back and forth, um, in my language, like one second, um, I can be talking about, uh, Safo, right. And all I learned about her in college, I took an amazing course at Hunter. Um, and then another moment I can talk about my dad, you know, smoking crack because that's real too. Um, and that that's a culmination of who I am and that I want people to accept all those aspects of me and all the aspects of my different voices and my writing. Enjoying WMFA? Please go to iTunes and leave us a review. What is the um, kind of feedback from your family or do they read your work? Yeah, like my dad, especially like I was really scared about him reading some of the poems. He said, hey, if I didn't want you to write about it, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> Um, so that was that was beautiful of him to like have that response. But um, yeah, my my family's really supportive, especially my sister, who actually was the person who told me about poetry. Like, I don't know, she was at NYU like twenty years ago, and um, she was like, "I'm taking this poetry class, and I love poetry, and poetry is great." And I was like, "I love novels. Like, I'm a novels girl. I don't I don't really care for poetry at that time." And I was like, "Poetry's too hard. Like, I don't really care for it. I'm never gonna." read a poem like that's what I told her um and then years later I'm like I love poetry and she's like you see you see <laughs> um so she comes to like almost all my readings and she's always with me and um she's super duper supportive and I appreciate her and all of my family really they're just they're beautiful they're beautiful yeah I just wondered about that kind of you know contrasting the the external attention with the with the internal attention yeah yeah I think um I, I, like I just I feel like their reaction to me being in the world is an open one, and how I have decided to write these poems that um, 
sometimes can bring up like real pain for them and for me too um it's really um the way they've reacted to it is really stunning and has taught me like what kind of a human being i want to be right uh, like a maybe a lesson in like the more vulnerable you are the more vulnerable you'll you're able to be yeah yeah i I wanted to ask you about this one line that I saw in an interview with you that just totally blew me away because it really resonated with me with my work, which is I think a very for a very similar reason that I think maps did and you know I come from West Virginia I'm Appalachian, but um I'm first generation Appalachian, which you know is not like a big deal. It's like my parents just came from like New Jersey and Pennsylvania. It wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. But so I kind of struggle with like at once feeling very connected to this Appalachian culture and, and at the same time feeling like I don't really get to claim it because I don't have, because it is a place of such deep roots and I don't have those deep roots. Um, and so you said something about uh, how do we define homeland in this place when we clearly are only one lovemaking story away from having been made in another place. And that just really blew me away. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what, you know, that, that piece of thinking and kind of where it takes you. Yeah. I mean, um, when I said that I was kind of meditating on, well, I was talking about my grandfather who had, pa- who, um, had passed away before Fidel, clearly. Um, and Fidel had just passed. And I'm, I was thinking, like, my grandfather, like, hated Fidel. Like, absolutely couldn't stand him. Yet, had my grandfather not fled from Cuba, my mom and my dad wouldn't have met. Um, and I wouldn't have been made um, here. I would be a different person, maybe, or not at all. How do you... How do, how do you not love America with all with all its issues and just everything that's been happening right now, just like this presidency and all of that? Um, how do you not love America when you were made here, right? It wasn't for this space, this sanctuary for both your parents. Um, you wouldn't be alive. But yet at the same time, like, I imagine, like, who would I be if I wasn't born here, if I was um, at another place and in another homeland? And how different um, I would be than what I am today. I was just grappling with a lot of that. Um, but really, like, that whole meditation came from Fidel dying and me thinking, my grandfather would be, like, elated right now. He'd be out on the streets, like, you know, in Miami, just, like, jumping for joy that Fidel was dead. But yet, he'd be kind of, like, erasing who I am. Because without Fidel, I wouldn't have existed. Yeah, and it, it seems... Like that's something that comes up in a lot of different ways, maybe in your work, the marriage of the the kind of beauty with the struggle. Yeah. I mean, that's who we are, right? I mean, uh, humans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what makes us is struggle and joy and beauty and, and that um, dichotomy. I always like, like one thing I've been meditating on lately is like, what, how different we would be if, if we didn't, if all we knew was joy you know, and we didn't know struggle. What do you think the answer might be? I don't know. I think we'd be closer. I think we'd be closer to animals than we are now. I mean, we're animals in our own right, but I think we would just be surviving and being. I don't know if struggle is something that human beings can separate from. I think that's part of like what we're supposed to bear. And I think that's okay. I think like without it, we wouldn't be able to create art. Like if we were all happy all the time, like what, 
I don't know, like all the songs would be like all happy. And right. <laughs> I personally love myself a sad love song. You know what I mean? Right, for sure. So, um, um, I like to feel, and sometimes like um, I, I told this to my friend the other day, I was like, you know, sometimes it's okay to feel pain. Sometimes feeling pain is, is good. And sometimes feeling pain is actually where you can um, create art from. And so I wonder too, like, yeah, we would create art, but it would be really different. Or would we even need to create art? Because sometimes art just comes from pain. Um, so yeah, all, like I've been—that's what I've been kind of meditating on lately. And probably a lot of my new poems are going to be sort of thinking about that. Yeah, it, it makes me think of the the questions thing again because it's just like that sense of if not, you know, aside from the more obvious implications of not having painful struggle it's just not even having kind of a restless struggle or a curious struggle yeah no curiosity you're always happy all the time can you talk a little bit about uh what inspired maps into being well my friend marcelo hernandez castillo who is an amazing poet in his own right he is a child of immigrants and you know his parents have had a lot of struggle being able to stay in the united states and um there was like a almost tragedy with his dad in Mexico. I won't tell the story because it's not mine to tell. But, um, you know, he reached out to his friends for help because he was he was going through a lot. And I started to think about man, like borders mess us up more than they they help. They God, I wish there weren't any borders. Like they're they're so unnecessary. And I think part of like all the issues we have in the world has to do with this idea of mine, mine, mine. And maybe if like mine went away and there were no borders, um, we would be so uh, we would be ahead of the game. We'd still have issues, but we'd we'd be ahead of the game, I think. Um, and so I I wanted to like sort of write a poem that captured um, how much I would be there for him if like the whole fucking shit went to hell. Um, but also like um, pay tribute to like the idea of the immigrant, and also in a little bit like talk about. What happens when, as as travelers, as tourists, we visit other places or want or desire to, and um, our interaction with locals too? Like the last line in that in that poem, I really wanted to talk about like when I go to the Caribbean and I see like everyone in these resorts and not kind of even talking to the tourists, not going outside of the resort and really like experiencing the food of that island and talking to the people. It's sort of a disservice because you're kind of keeping the gap that's already there in place, and that gap shouldn't be there at all. I, I that makes me think about what you were saying earlier about kind of being exoticized by white, like kind of the white poetry world, and and it's sort of that same. I don't know. It, it, it's it's kind of just a different sort of colonization. What you're describing, it's like, well, we mm-hmm. came to this place, but we made our own place within it. And that's right. the place that we identify as the place. Right. right. That's the place and nothing else. Like how locals can't go to like their own beaches, you know? Yeah. Like we're all like, I know it seems so simplistic, but like at the end of the day, we're all just human. Right. And um, that's the only, that's like the hurdle that we have to get over is just realizing that one thing, like we're all exactly the same right um we all want the same thing i think there was a harvard study that i just saw the other day um where they were like they spent like 60 years like following a whole bunch of graduates and um 
not even graduates, just people in the Boston area, um, because they wanted to figure out um, what happiness was or what joy was or what being like, how do you, how do you get to a place where you're joyful? Um, and they said that the only thing that was consistent um, in every single person that actually was really, really happy in their life and fulfilled was that they had um, love. They had someone that understood them and that they connected with implicitly. And that's all like every human being like actually needs, you know. Um, and the minute we realize that that's like the only thing every single one of us wants and like all of a sudden we realize, shit, we're exactly the same. And, right. Yeah. 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 And, and I know what you mean. Cause it sounds so cheesy, like, mm-hmm. Oh, love, 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 love. But I've been doing, um, I've been trying to think about kind of more, you know, lately why I want the things that I want and why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. And I keep coming back to this concept of just like understanding and being understood. And I don't mm-hmm. think that I really appreciated how, you know, and just like for my own work history, like I started out in journalism and I still do some journalism, but like, it was all this very like outward focused, like explaining other people. And then, and now I feel like I'm kind of in this place of saying like, but I don't feel like I'm understood in those ways. Mm. Yeah. And that's all we really want, right? Right. Um, Someone to hold up a mirror and say, what you see is what I see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Do your poems linger with you for, for a long time? Yeah, forever. <laughs> so are you saying like in the process of writing or after I've written them? Uh, I, I meant after you've written them. I, I read you say that there was um, the one poem, The Day I Realized We Were Black, that you couldn't read publicly without crying for a few years. Yeah, like that poem is crazy. Um, I remember at my graduation at Drew, like everyone said, can you read that poem? Can you read that poem? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> like, don't make me do that. Um, and so at dinner, my friend Darla Himlis, who was an incredible um, poet as well, um, she sat at the dinner table, grabbed my book and or grabbed my manuscript and like read that poem aloud. And I, I couldn't even look at her. Yeah, so they do linger with me and that poem still lingers with me. Um, they're your babies, each poem. So like, yeah, like I know all of them and like intimately and I carry them with me every day. Like, there's not one poem I've written that I don't remember. How does a poem usually begin for you? So it's it's weird because I write in the morning. Um, I used to write at work until, like, you got caught. My, job, <laughs> my job was like, wait, <laughs> are you working or are you writing poems? What are you doing? But no, seriously, I work at, like, a huge law firm, and they've had all these, like, security um, um, applications that have been put in place. So, like, oh, I can't get to Gmail now, and I can't do all this stuff. So, um like, and it's not just me, like, yeah, I, at first I was like, they're just doing this to me, but they did it to the entire firm. Um, so now I'm, I'm, I'm like, damn, I can't like do anything at work. So I wake up extra early. I wake up like at five in the morning to write. And, um, because I feel like when I'm, when I just wake up like early in the morning, I'm still kind of in the other world. I'm still sort of, um, in my dream state. And so things come really, really easy for me early in the morning. Like, after 10, I can't write anything usually. Um, but how do they come to me? They, I, I just sit down and I say this, like, I don't know if it's me writing I'll, most of the time. Um, most of the time I can sit down and pretty much write one poem 
from beginning to end. It's not perfect. It needs a lot of revision, but like the, the bones are there. Um, and I don't usually think that's me doing it because I kind of like almost like just write and then I go, Oh, and then I read it and I'm like, Oh, I wrote that. Um, the, um, the writer, activist and poet Alexis DeVoe, who wrote, um, the Audre Lorde biography warrior poet, she says the same thing. She just had this book called Yaddo come out and she said that she doesn't think she wrote it. Like she thinks like she was at her, she knows she was at her computer she knows she was typing, but she she said there were many hands in going in and out of her body, helping her write. Um, and, you know, that's a I think that's a really controversial thing to say, because a lot of artists want to take credit for being awesome, which they should and, and doing the work. But you also have to, like, pay tribute to, like, your ancestors and the people that are with you constantly, the spirits that are with you who, who have a hand in, in your everyday. And I think for me, that happens more often than not. Do you feel like your goal is to ultimately write poetry full time or are you happy with the schedule that you have now? That changes every week. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I struggle. That's a huge struggle for me, actually, right now. Because one week, I'm like, yeah, this is fine. Like, I've been at my job for 13 years. In seven years, I can retire with full pension, right? So that's that's big. That's important. A lot of people don't have that. I don't want to kind of F that up. But at the same time, I'm like, man, if I die tomorrow, I died going to work every day, nine to five, you know? Um, so then I struggle with that too. Um, and it changes every week. Like one week I'm like, yay, I was able to buy red wine. I love my job. And like the next week I'm like, I don't care. I don't need red wine. I just want to be a poet. So, um, I don't know where, where, where I'll be in a year. Like I can tell you that, um, because I do go back. I've been going back and forth a lot more this year than I ever have. Um, so I know there's sort of like a shift happening in me. Um, I don't know if I want to like teach I don't know like I love teaching workshops and such but I'm I'm terrified of like the bureaucracy of academia um, my ideal life would be just to um, live like from fellowship to fellowship but you can never you don't know if you're gonna get into things um, um, but there are people who do it and are very successful at it yeah I don't know I don't know like my friend Diana and I she also works sort of in a corporate environment and she's a poet we're always like having these dinners where we like plan out our escape and then we never really do anything. <laughs> it's so hard to like, you know, and I think especially right now, you know, and, and there have been all of these great think pieces written about like what bullshit just like it is do what you love and like the money will come kind of thing. It's like, um, you know, like I'm working on a novel right now and I'm like, okay, but if I quit all of my client work and just sit here, like, do I think that just like checks are going to magically appear? Like exactly. I still need to pay my rent. Um, and I have the same struggle and like exactly what you said, there are days where you're just like, I've got this worked out really nicely. It's super fine. I don't care. And then some days you're just like, nothing else matters but the written word. And you're just like, <laughs> exactly. Yep. I go, like, that's like a, a weekly thing for me. Um, yeah, like, I think at the beginning of this week, was it? Yeah, Monday, I literally typed up my two-week notice at work. And I was walking around with it in my pocket. Whoa. And um, I, was, I, called my, I, I called my friends and I was like, yeah, so, like, this is happening. And my friend Diana's like, 
how are you going to afford your maca and your matcha? Like, what are you doing? Okay, stop, cut it out. Rip that up. Like, we'll talk about it. Let's go to dinner. You know, like, like, matcha's like, for yuppies. I don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I'll figure it out. I'll figure something out. She's like, she's like, trust me. Well, let's go to dinner and let's talk about it. So yeah, it's a struggle, but you know, you know what? Um, I say this, I'm doing it right. Like I'm, I'm working, I'm, I'm sustaining myself. I'm paying my bills. Um, I'm paying my huge student loans and I'm still creating art. Um, and so it's possible to do both. Is it ideal? Is, do I want like three months off to like go to Europe and like write whatever or to go to South Africa and write for three months? Yeah, of course I want that. Um, will I get that? Maybe soon, maybe later. Um, but right now I'm still doing what I love, which is poetry. And so I'm okay with that. As long as I can do poetry um, some way, somehow, then I'm, I'm all right. And I think a lot of folks don't think that they can keep a full-time job and be artists. And I think that's a falsity. I think like the idea of the starting artist, a starving art, artist is not true. And it gets people in trouble, you know? Like, I think you can work and you can do it if you really love it and you really like make space for it, you know? Do your coworkers know that you're a poet? Yeah, they do. Um, they think I'm a hippie, crazy woman. Um, yeah, like my boss, who who I love, who I have a really good relationship with, he came to my book launch party and, you know, um, I read a poem called White Noise about, um, you know, working in corporate America and about like suburban folks. And he was like, that's not about me. He yelled out, that's not about me. I, I live in Harlem, you know. Um, so, yeah, like they're, they, they're aware that I like they're aware that if I have to leave at five o'clock on the dock because I have a reading like you can't keep me. Like, so there, there are boundaries, which are, which is great with, with my boss. Um, but yes, a lot of folks at the job are like, she's just a crazy hippie girl that sees the world really differently. We don't really know what she's doing here. And that's okay. They can think that. So you do readings quite frequently. Yeah. Like it's been um, a slower year this year because I've been concentrating on writing the second book, but April was crazy. I had a whole bunch of readings. Do you like giving readings? Um, no, I don't like reading. I actually like every time I have to read, I'm like, why didn't I become like a painter or some shit? I have like, it's not even nervous energy. I'm just like terrified at the beginning. Once I get up there and I'm on like midway through the first poem, something shifts, right? But the the energy and the nervousness and the terrified feeling I have right before I get um, on stage is not fun. And it makes me always question whether I'm doing the right thing, whether I'm doing the right, I'm, I'm like in the right field of art. So yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm slowly realizing and um, Rachel Liza Griffith told me that if I don't read my poems and I'm doing the world a disservice. Um, so I kind of like always remember that when someone emails me and is like, oh, can you do a reading? And I'm like, no. But I, I then say yes, because I know that she says that that's what I'm supposed to do as a poet. So I do it. Can you talk at all about the new book or do you want to keep quiet about it while it's still a work in progress? It's still a work in progress, but I'll say this. It's looking at the different ways that we are all oppressed and colonized. And um, I do have a title. The title is Muse Found in a Colonized Body. And um, that's part, that's like a longer poem that I'm working on that has like, I don't know, so far it has like 10, 12 sections. Yeah, like I'm really excited about it. And um, it's important to me to kind of like have a roadmap of the ways that I'm, the, the ways my thinking is, is sort of 
affected by my colonization um, and my oppression um, and the way that others around me are the same um, because that sort of um, gives me a common ground with others. So that's sort of what I've been ruminating um, about. And and it's sort of something I feel like it's necessary for me to have. Like if the book never gets picked up by any publisher, like I know I have like this book that tells me and reminds me, no, you're not crazy. Like the reason why you think this way is because this happened to your ancestors or because trauma is inherited. Just remember those things. So that's helpful for me. It's been a helpful um, exercise for me. Oh, I can't wait to read that. And do you, do you feel like it's a kind of Trump reactionary also, or I know these are, these are deep questions and things that you think about and have thought about for a long time. So I don't want to kind of reduce it to the presidency, but. It's interesting you say that because um, I think I don't mention him at all because I try not to, um, but um, I do feel like there's a, there's more urgency now to sort of leave that type of blueprint or roadmap behind because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Like he's insane. <laughs> and um, I know everyone's like, you're an alarmist. Like when I tell people we might all die soon, they're like, you're crazy. I'm like, no, listen to me. Um, I, I sort of think like, yeah, like we're in like these times are like, this is the time, like have urgency write down all your shit because we don't know. We're not promised tomorrow regardless. Like, you know, I could get hit by a truck tomorrow. But like also um, with the way that the political climate is, we all are not promised tomorrow, right? So we have to think in those terms and be urgent with our work. And I think another key part of that too is just not letting it become normalized like keep writing so that you keep understanding how insane it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because everyone, I mean, I work in corporate America. It's so normal. It's already normal, right? It's already normal with so many people. And so you have to kind of like fight against that every day because that's, and also that's the inclination of human nature. We want to be like, we want to feel comfortable. We don't want to be in a state of panic all the time. And so like, that's we're going to be inclined to to make to normalize it just so we can feel better every day and we can't we shouldn't what is your writing setup like so i um i write in my living room so i have a one bedroom apartment in new york i'm in harlem um and so i i bought myself like i gifted myself this huge beautiful table which is probably too big for my living room, but I don't care. Um, it's I've always wanted like this beautiful old table that I can pass down to my niece, you know, and um, and that that costs like a good chunk of money, and it's like kind of like gonna be an heirloom, and that I can like put all my poems on and spread them out and kind of look at like a whole manuscript on it, and that's what I did. I gave myself that gift last year, um, and I'm still paying for that gift, <laughs> but. It's worked out because I, I get so happy every single morning when I wake up and I take my laptop out and I put it on, on top of this beautiful table, which I'm actually sitting at right now. And, um, and I write and I look at it and I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's, it's a gift and it's inspiring. And it's just a thing, right? But it's this beautiful block of wood that once was. And yeah, like I think it sort of gives me some type of life because I've been writing a lot more since I got it. So, and then I revise like usually once a month. So, 
like at the end of the month, I go back and print out every poem I wrote or every little thing I wrote, and then I start revising. I'm always really struck when I read poetry at the playfulness of the the formatting and the layout and breaks and spaces. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how and when you incorporate that piece into your work. I really love kind of like enjambment. I like my reader thinking that I'm done with a thought, but then it continues and it's it makes it new on the next line. So I try really hard to do that a lot. Um, I'm not always successful. I remember like I think I don't remember who said it, but someone said something like, if you break your line on your breath, that's really boring, right? So although that's the inclination is to do that because you want your reader to kind of like read it the way you would read it, you also want to give your reader surprise. Um, so to play with line is really important to me. Um, I, I mean, I always look, I, I usually just write straight. Right. And then I go back and I go, where can I play? It's kind of like a puzzle. Where can I create like whimsy for my reader? Um, where can I, where can I surprise them? Where, where, where have I surprised myself? Uh, oh, look at this. And, and then break there. I like to do a lot of that. And sometimes it's really, it works. And sometimes it actually doesn't. And I have to just go back to breaking on the breath and be boring. But um, yeah, I, I, the line is really, really important to me. And I, I look at it under a microscope. Do you find that word choice is part of that puzzle solving as well? Is that something that kind of gets drilled down into more and more specificity? Yeah. Yeah. So usually when I print out the poems at the end of the month, I'll look at some of my words and then I'll like open up a thesaurus and I'll like write all the different words for it next to it um, with a pencil until I find the right one, if the original one wasn't right. Because sometimes you, you don't even realize there's another word that could like create um, an alliteration for you, and you don't know that unless you start researching. So there is some research that goes into it, right, into creating like a solid poem, um, but not much. Like I don't go crazy over it. A lot of the times the right word just comes to me because that's that's the space I was in, and that's the word that I'm supposed to use. But sometimes if I like, let's say, send a poem to my friend, and she goes, ah, this word stopped me. I know. Like, let me, let me try to figure out a different word for that. But yeah, word choice is fun, man. That, that is like a puzzle. And it's also nice when you have another language, too, because you can kind of play. I taught a grammar course at Wayne State here in Detroit one semester, and I was trying to explain to these kids who were like, you know, most of them are just like required to take this course, like they weren't super jazzed about it. And I was talking about how, like how perfect how much I love finding like the perfect word with the perfect definition I especially love when you look up a word and it's got like just the definition goes like a half step in a different direction than you meant but like it fits perfectly and Mm -hmm. you're like no this is 100% fully the correct word I love when that happens and they were all just like cool yeah lady okay cool yeah they're like all right whatever (laughs) yeah definitions are sexy I love definitions and um I have a friend who who taught me this this way of him writing his poems where he puts footnotes in his poems. So he'll write like um a title um and then maybe the title's footnoted and the title could be something, I don't know. And then his poem will be like four lines, but then he will recreate a definition for his poem at the bottom as a footnote and that's the poem and that's something that I've been playing with a lot and I think that's a really cool and interesting new format yeah. for poetry. 
that no one's ever played with before um, to create your own kind of dictionary. Um, someone out there needs to get on that. Um, but yeah, like there's so much you can do when you start to think about words and redefining them for yourself. Um, that's fun too. How does reading come into your process? Who are some poets that you look up to? Or, and do you, do you find that you get inspiration from reading forms besides poetry? Yeah, I read everything, I, but mostly poetry, right? Because that's the way I, you get better. Like, I don't think any poet can say they're a poet and be growing in their craft if they're not reading. Reading is important, but also reading is the way that you can never have writer's block. Um, Natalie Diaz says that as long as you have a book around, you don't have writer's block because all you have to do is open it up to a random page and look at a random sentence and go from there. And I, that's gotten me out of bind so many times. Some of the poets that I like can't live without, Araceli's Gramai to me is, um, she to me is is probably like, I have two mom poets. Like I have, like if I were the if I were the baby of like two poets, it would be Araceli's and Natalie Diaz because they both influenced my work so much. Araceli's was my first um, teacher at, at Drew University, and she changed my my idea of what what a poet can do on the page. But then Natalie also like solidified my voice. I took a class with her a while back. Um, so th- they're poets that I go to over and over and over and over again. Um, other poets that I can name are Ross Gay, Ada Limon, Patrick Rosal. Um, if I'm thinking about like dead poets and I do read like dead white poets, I, I like them. <laughs> um, Jack Gilbert is one of my favorite poets of ever. Like every line that he writes is perfection. And I've learned a lot from him. Cornelius Edie as well is an incredible poet who I've actually had the luck and like the grace of being um being in a classroom with and he has taught me a lot about lines um but if you want to learn everything about the line you go to Yusuf Kumanyaka because he's like a genius at creating surprise and line breaks but yeah like I have I mean I don't know I have 300 poetry books right now that I'm looking at on my shelf and I like every week I buy more like it's it's an obsession. That's why I guess I still keep my job because I need to buy books and red wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's the secret to the writing life right there. I love yeah. it. Red wine and books. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that you might eventually, you know, looking back to your initial love affair with the novel, do you think that you might kind of mesh those two genres in a way at some point? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about it. Like, I think I have things to say that would, I think I have something to say that maybe, like, poetry is not the best format. It's not the best genre to do it in. Like, um, you know, my, like, my mom's, up, my mom's being into the world was very tumultuous. And that whole story is something that I want to write about. Um, and I tried writing it, like, sort of in an epic um, an epic type poem where it was like really long and it was just one whole story, but sort of told, um, kind of like Omero's, um, that, that long book, um, by Walcott, but it wasn't working. And so I don't know if, and I don't know if it's not, it wasn't working because I'm just like really hard on myself and I didn't show it to anybody or if it's not working because I know maybe like this is actually a novel or a memoir and not, um, poetry but 
I don't, I think only time will tell. Like I do think about like going into different genres. I think about playwriting a lot. Um, but so, so far, like poetry has my heart. And so I haven't, I haven't strayed from her. I won't cheat on her yet. The last question I wanted to ask you is what creative satisfaction looks like to you right now? Yeah. I mean, I'm just happy to still have something to say. Yeah, as long as I can, like, wake up every morning and still write down at least one line, that satisfies me. That's enough for me. That's that's something that I will keep in mind for sure when I'm feeling all, I want to be published in this place and write this thing and be at this fellowship. And I'll be like, no, just. Yeah, that's something that's something that I was talking to my friends about the other day. Like, um, yeah, there, I mean, you know, we're artists, we have egos, right? We want to be, we want to get into stuff and we want to like get published by like really cool publishing houses and all that. Um, but there was, there was a reason why as, as children, we came to this craft that had nothing to do with any of that stuff. And you have to remind yourself of that every day. So you don't get sidetracked because all that other stuff is noise. Actually, if you keep your head down and just do your work, all that stuff will come. It will, but you know, it's a distraction just do the work and whatever happens, happens. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, wmfapodcast.com. You can email us at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find us on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. Download and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Reviews are greatly appreciated. Or visit our website for more options. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC.